Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I am your host, Alex Ballinger. If you're joining us again after last week's debut episode, thanks very much for coming back. And if you're new to the show, I hope you really enjoy it. Before we get started, you can follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast, where we will be posting links to all of the stories we talk about in each episode. Or you can follow me personally at AMB Hack. This week, we have got our reporter, Tristan Cork, who's going to be talking about a new regional bus service called Metrobus. Metrobus is supposed to be a new rapid public transport scheme for the West of England region that takes people to the centre of Bristol quickly and efficiently, but it's been hit by a catalogue of errors and delays ever since work started. So we'll be talking about that. We also have our reporter, Joe Smith, who was victim of the North Bristol bike gang, had his bike stolen. And he's going to be talking about his coverage of that issue. And then we're going to speak to our political reporter, Esme Ashcroft, who has been exploring, which is what has become a bit of a dirty word in politics these days, but council housing and Bristol City Council's new plans to end the housing crisis. Let's go straight into our first segment, which is about the Metrobus regional bus scheme, which has been hit with a catalogue of delays and errors. My name's Tristan Cork. I'm a reporter at Bristol Live. And so today, Tristan, we are going to be talking about the catalogue of delays and mess-ups and just bizarre situations that has been the development of the Metrobus system. Yeah. So can you just tell us briefly what is the most recent development? Oh, well, where do I start? The most recent story we've done is about the delays to one specific route, which is the uh, one from Long Ashton to Temple Meads, which is known as M2, when it actually finally works. That one was due to be the first Metrobus route to open, and it was supposed to open two years ago. Then it was supposed to open last autumn. Then it was supposed to open at Easter. Then it was supposed to open in spring. And now there is no date for it to open. So the story most recently, which which most people would have heard about, was the fact that the the guided busway, the, where the, the little wheels on the side of the bus don't quite fit into the rail, so that's going to have to be adjusted. So that one's been delayed. I haven't built many, you know, metropolitan bus no. routes in my past, but that seems like a pretty obvious mistake. Have yeah. we got any idea how that happened? Well, um, no, I mean, you know, obviously when you do something like that, you, you've got to test it and they've tested it and found it needs to be adjusted. Maybe it's um, reasonable to, to think that they might not get it right first time. I don't know. The, the thing about it is that the from a kind of, frustration point for the whole city I guess and from our point of view what makes it a kind of good story is that the guided busway bit of the metro bus is pretty much the only thing that separates this that kind of lifts this project up from being just basically a glorified bus lane metro bus hates it when you say metro bus is just a glorified bus lane because it is much more than that and it's 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 been a it's been the biggest infrastructure project in Bristol for a generation. The actual guided busway bit is the thing that kind of separates it, makes it something more than just a bus lane. And there's been a lot of talk about Metrobus over the years. It's been mm. a long time coming. What are supposed to be the benefits for Bristol of a bus scheme like this? It's basically quick routes into the city centre from places which aren't particularly well served by buses already and trains and stuff. So somewhere like Long Ashton, Ashton Vale, at the moment, if you get a bus from Ashton Vale to Temple Mead, it goes around the houses and it takes quite a long time. But that one is more for like the park and ride at Long Ashton. Uh, they're on Emerson Screen, there's going to be a park and ride there. And it's effectively trying to create some kind of, the closest you can get to like some kind of little tramway system. 
So it would mean faster journey times, but that all the hassle it has caused and the huge amount of problems and delays and roadworks for a quicker 10 minute route in, you know, it, people are, have long questioned whether it's worth it. I also understand that as well as big problems, like the bus is actually fitting. There was some smaller issues that they've had as well, including something to do with the tickets that I know you're exploring. Can you tell us a little <laughs> yeah. bit about that one? Uh, well, the Metrobus will have stops, will have their own ticket machines, which are these great big 10 foot tall. The best analogy I saw on social media was someone, you know, those great big, the, the, the monolith stone in 2001 Space Odyssey, which taught monkeys how to make fire. They look exactly like that. that. They do. Yeah. They look like that from a distance. So these machines are going to be everywhere. They're going to be all around Bristol. There's going to be like 75 of them or something, 70 odd. They put one up at Long Ashton Park and Ride and it was going to be the first one and they were going to test it and stuff. It, it's such a tall thing that it catches the rain when it rains from whatever angle, the, you know, faces prevailing wind, I don't know. And then all the rain just runs down the front of it and goes into the spot where you put your the little bit where the ticket comes out. And in heavy rain, the rain pours down and you put your hand in and the little flap flaps in and literally funnels all the rain onto your ticket before you get the chance to pick it up. And so um, we heard this and we went out to, it was quite funny, this hasn't seen the light of day yet, but one day it will. We we went out to film uh, this and it wasn't particularly raining very hard. So we risked uh, criminal damage against the, the machine and poured water on it to imitate heavy rain. And sure enough, it's true. And that particular problem was confirmed by Metrobus. And there have been, I believe, design changes to the iPoint machines, which is another little delay. The iPoint machines are coming off the production line. They're, they're unique to this project. They aren't just made in a factory for other places like Newcastle or, or you know London or something. They're bespoke things for Bristol. But this project, and they are making them and changing them as they've tested them, and they are being delayed coming off because of that. And so they are being installed as they arrive from the factory. They're being installed now on the route that is going to be open. One of the stories, I've done so many Metrobus stories in the last week or so. One of them was that the M2 route from Ashton Vale is now not going to be the first because of these delays. So they've switched all the iPoint installations to the other route from Emerson's Green into the city centre. That's going to be soon, maybe May, end of May. So how forthcoming have Metrobus been with their explanations and of delays? It's really hard. I mean, and it's not just me as well, because the councillors who are involved in this, I've done a couple of stories where the, the one of the local councillors in South Bristol, one or two of them, they've been told it's fine, it'll be open soon. And then they read in, in on Bristol Live, there's a problem. And they're like, well, we weren't told this. So, and, you know, I did a story last month, I think it was, with councillor Steve Clark from Southville, who said, you know, I've been misled and people have been misled about this. And then there was another Metrobus story, which was the disappearing route, which dis- mysteriously disappeared off the map. And South Bristol's MP, Karen Smith, said that it's that's a deceit. It's very difficult as a journalist because they are the ones with all the facts about this. You You hope they're going to tell you. And it's almost a game to kind of say to them what well, what's going to happen with this one and they're like they're very careful with the information that they disseminate out it's almost they're in damage limitation mode or crisis management straight away the story about the roots being dropped was an obvious one because suddenly it was wasn't there anymore the one about the guided rails it took a while asking very specific questions to which there could only be a yes or no answer basically 
as a journalist, it's, it's, you kind of op- you you almost trained to ask open questions. What's the problem here? And uh, you know, what do you think about this? But in this particular instance, it's it, when people are being not forthcoming with the information that you want to know. You, you have to really sort of analyze it and pinpoint it. And I'd heard this that this was an issue um, from other people, so that's how I got it. What's happening with Metrobus now is that leaks are beginning to come out. There are people who are in the know a bit more than than the average person beginning to realize that this is just you know a bit of a nightmare so that they're they're coming forward with the, with information. There is going to be a lot more Metrobus stories in the next few weeks. Speaking about the disappearing link road, there's a similar situation with the Avon Crescent plans on Spike Island where there was supposed to be a shared space that was built that people were really excited about in the area that just never yeah. came to and people were never never told why. And it turned out recently that the council had budgetary constraints, I suppose yeah. is the way to put it. They meant that they couldn't do one of the things that were planned. Do you think people are going to get what they were promised from Metrobus? No. <laughs> in a word. I mean, when it was when they launched the M3 route the other day and they had all the council leaders and the guy from First Bus on the bus and they were saying uh, within six months of it running people will think it's great and I, I do get that and I'm sure it will change people there will be people who use it in the way it's intended but at the moment what that what it will look like when it's ready when it's done when, when it's finished is basically just a glorified park and ride scheme effectively that's what it is and we've been through all this hassle and nightmare and roadworks and money the million hundreds of millions of pounds will it be worth it in the end i think people uh, will want to know and i just don't think it will be because right from the start it like you say they've dropped things that the all the extra bits that would make it great have been kind of dropped you know there will be people who use it but would they have transferred from a bus that they ordinarily would use or would they come from their cars i don't know thank you very much for your help Tristan. cheers Thank you very much, Tristan, for that. That was really interesting. Now, going into our next segment, we're going to be talking to reporter Joe Smith, who fell victim to the North Bristol bike gang on the day he moved to the city. So let's talk to him about his coverage of those crimes. You've been chasing a story that you've had quite a close involvement with personally, and that is the Bristol bike gang, who are quite notorious. It's been quite difficult to cover, and it's been a nightmare for police. It's been a nightmare for the victims. It's just seems to have been a massive, massive problem in the city. Can you tell us a little bit about where this has all come from? Yeah, so I suppose I, my personal involvement uh, with this begins on the day I began work in April 2017. Uh, I woke up on the morning, going to start my new job. I was all excited, went outside. Someone had stolen my motorbike. It's my only form of transport. So that put a little bit of a dent in my day. I arrived in the newsroom, there was a news conference going on. I mentioned that this had happened as a kind of an excuse, sorry I'm late, my bike was nicked. And straight away the crime reporter at the time was like, oh you should write about that. And I said, why? She was like, well it's a big problem in Bristol, this is happening a lot. And she explained to me that there were these gangs of kids who were stealing bikes, posting them on Instagram, burning them, videoing themselves, like ragging them around and at night normally. And that was my first engagement with the bike takers sure enough a few weeks later it pops up on instagram my bike and um that was a pretty heartbreaking moment for me seeing it up there people kind of talking about it you know someone saying oh that bike looks terrible and the guy who stole it being like no it's really fun to ride around in the fields and someone else being like oh buy it and then he was like no it's been burnt now so yeah this is an experience that people have had 
across Bristol, there's been a spike in motorbike crime. It began beginning of last year, end of 2016. It's, it's been an ongoing problem. The police have been working hard to tackle it. But What is the problem for the police then? It seems quite straightforward because there's a lot of names that float around online for who's involved in this. People seem to know the areas that these guys are coming from as well. What has been the problem for police for actually getting convictions and catching these guys? So it's been very, very hard for them to prove that somebody in a post on Instagram next to a stolen bike is the person that stole the bike. That's essentially the problem for them. It's really frustrating for the biker community and for people who've had their bike stolen because some people know who these kids are. They know that it's being done. It's catching them in the act. It's, it's the burden of proof that's proving to be a real problem or has been a real problem for police. And they don't seem fussed either, these criminals, these kids that are going out and stealing bikes. They don't seem too worried about the police. They don't seem too worried about the bikers. They've been actively mocking people involved in this, haven't they? I was just reading about the, the demonstration that the bikers had where they rode through Southmead. There was a couple of hundred bikes, wasn't there? And mm. they took a picture and posted disparagingly about them you know the criminals took a picture posted it online disparagingly about these guys so they don't seem fussed at all do they no they don't and that's you know that attitude that they have has again caused a lot of upset a lot of frustration amongst biker community and there have been you know moves to try and take matters into people's own hands they've put together this dossier last year that you know is uh, by all accounts not very accurate but, um, you know, people have been doing surveillance work and looking at where they hang out and stuff. But, yeah, there's been there's been a community response that's been that's been kind of driven by how brazen they're being about it. And that was a problem for the police for a while. I think they, they were worried that, you know, things were going to get beyond their control. But what's happened recently with, with vigilantism, with vigilantism. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, people say a lot of stuff online, but yeah, threats are being made. And, and I think it probably did worry the police a bit. But at the beginning of this year, they um sat down with the community. They had a Q&A and they kind of listened to the problems that bikers were facing and, and, and the issues that they were having. And the police and several different groups have started working much more closely together. And I think that's been quite beneficial. So one group I'm writing about recently are the Stolen Motorbike Recovery Bristol group. Some lads who set up a Facebook page after their bikes were stolen. And they, they live in, in Harkliff, which is an area that's there's a lot of motorbike crime down there. And so they would be finding bikes that have been stolen and then either st- stashed or, or dumped in parkland or in fields and they've started putting them back together with owners so they'll, they'll be posted people who are missing bikes they'll go and have a look in places they know where bikes stolen bikes end up uh to date they've they recovered 30 motorbikes returned to their owners free of charge and they're also in the market for a van as well aren't they they're in the market for yeah some more yeah. transport they, yeah so they're trying to expand what they do they made very clear when i talked to them that they work with the police so their job is to recover bikes not to kind of track down criminals or dispense justice so at the moment, they're looking to expand what they do for that. They need a van. They have access to a van like part-time at the moment, but I think they want their own, their own van so they can do recoveries as and when they need to. And police have tried to take a slightly different approach to this as well, haven't they? They've set up their own operation specifically to target bike crime in Bristol called Operation Bull. Mm. And they've been trying a few different methods to try and crack down on this as well. Can you talk us through some of the ways they've been doing that? Yeah, so Operation Bull uh, started in January 2017 under Inspector Rob Cheeseman. I think one of the things they tried to do last year was tackle the Instagram, social media element of it, which has proved very, very tricky. I mean, it's like a whack, whack-a-mole. You close down one of these accounts, another one will spring up. What seems to happen is that each each area of Bristol where bike crimes happen has their own little group of normally young male bike thieves who have their own Instagram account, and they will chat with each other on Instagram. They'll trade bikes amongst each other. And these groups have proved very hard to close down. I don't know if that's lack of cooperation from the social media uh, companies or, or what. We have done stories about potential trap bikes. So there, there, there is a possibility that the police have been leaving 
bikes with trackers, you know, that look tempting to bike thieves. And then I, I think what's been having a, a, good, a yeah, good effect lately is the community engagement work they've been doing. And one of them that I saw, one of the approaches from the police was a community order that they've tried to put in place on some of the younger members, of the suspected members of the gang, including one where they got a kid who was about 17, I think, to not sit on bikes anymore. And if he sat on bikes, he could be taken to court, which I'm not sure if that worked or not, but it was quite an interesting approach. Mm. Um, I understand that the Bristol Lives coverage has also been seen as problematic amongst the biker community and with the police as well. What were the reasons for their problems with the coverage? Yeah, so there have been several problems. It's been a hard story to tell, like you said at the beginning. It's, it's been a difficult one to go through sometimes. Some of those problems are my fault, personally. I take responsibility for a story I wrote last year, which was uh, I came across a Facebook group that was advertising a big biker rally. And this group, uh, mm. the events page on Facebook, said, you know, we're going we're gonna to show these bike thieves who's boss, we're going to close down Bristol, we're going to drive around. And I wrote a story based on that. And um, pretty soon after that, I was contacted by members of the biking community who were like, look, they're painting us in a bad light. This isn't what we're doing. I was contacted by members of the police who said, you know, we're organizing this rally. You're making us look bad. And so that soured my relationship with groups of bikers who have been organizing to tackle the bike taker groups. I feel like that relationship has been somewhat repaired recently. I met members of the Stolen Motorbike Recovery Group down the road here in Old Market. We had a chat. But previous to that, we'd had a few like quite quite spicy exchanges. You know, they weren't they weren't that keen on me or what I was doing. I tried to join their group, and they were not having that. And you know, understandably, they're a bit skeptical of my my angle or, or what I was about. But I think we sat down and had a chat, and I explained to them that I don't really have an angle. I just want to tell. I want to explain what's going on. I don't want to you know promote one side or the other. There's also been mention of us glorifying criticism leveled at Bristol Life for glorifying these criminals by talking about it by posting about the things they've been doing on Instagram because people will argue that that's what they want. As the person that's been writing about this probably the most, what are your thoughts on, on us reporting about the Instagram pages and whether we are encouraging them by doing that? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. So that, that's something that I've, an argument I've had several times with, with members of uh, like biker groups. You know, why are we glorifying these people? Why are we giving them publicity? We're just going to encourage this kind of behaviour and stuff. But at the same time, you know, we're a newspaper and our job is to report crime when it happens. And this is an ongoing problem in Bristol. You know, it's, it's a big problem. It's happening a lot. What makes it unique, what makes it a new story is that these, these kids are kind of publicizing it themselves. You know, it's out there on social media. You know, some of these accounts have hundreds or thousands of followers. For us to kind of turn a blind eye to that, I think would be remiss. You know, that's, that, that would be my counter argument to it. But at the same time, I want to be able to tell the stories of the groups who are doing the opposite thing, who are trying to combat it and who are trying to get bikes back to their owners and stuff. I think there's a balance you can strike there. You mentioned earlier your relationship with the biker community as well. With this sort of story where it affects quite a compact group, quite specifically, you know, bike owners, bike riders in Bristol, how important is a sense of relationship with that community for yourself? You know, as a reporter, how much easier is it if you have people that you can trust and that trust you when reporting a story like this? Yeah, it's a lot easier. And, and that that has happened recently. I think since the I wrote a few articles about the stolen motorbike recovery Bristol group and I think a lot of people have read those and they've realized that you know we we don't have like a bias in favor of the bike taker gangs we're not just trying to be sensationalist and I've had phone calls from people who've, who've said as much to me and they've you know given me information and, and telling stories in the right way you can build bridges with communities and you know that helps both both sides you know so the, the work that these guys do recovering bikes they would like that to be publicised. And that's, from my point of view, a great story that needs to be told. So it's mutually beneficial. 
is it about showing the human aspect as well? Because you can report figures, you can talk about how many bikes have been stolen, what police are doing to counter it. But how important is it to get someone who says, I've been a victim of this, this is how horrible it is? Yeah, definitely. I think those are the stories that really stick in people's minds. It's, it's not the numbers, it's not the statistics. It's Barry who's had his bike stolen or his bike set fire to and him talking about how that was his pride and joy. That's what people relate to. And those are, that's the kind of the truth of the story. Is, is it's, it's a big uh, problem with hundreds of victims, but each one of those victims has lost something really important to them, and, and it's getting that across that matters. And so finally, what is the next step for the police, for the victims, for the biker groups, and for us reporting on them as well? So things are moving forwards. I think police are keen to work more closely with some of these groups in the future. They do work closely already. That relationship's going to move forward, I think, and they're going to build on that. In terms of the bike takers themselves, I've been looking at some Facebook groups. Some of the guys covering bikes have been reporting a, a spike in bike crime as the weather gets warmer. Uh, you know, there's more kids out on the streets. There may be an uptick in bike crime. In terms of us, what we're going to do moving forwards covering this, hopefully we're going to be working more closely with some of the recovery groups. We're going to be talking to people who are doing their best to combat this, both the police and the um, biker community, so we can tell that side of the story as well, which previously isn't something we've been able to do. Great stuff. Thanks for your help, Jay. And thanks to Joe for that. That was really interesting. Now let's go to our political reporter, Esme Ashcroft, who has been talking about council housing and how Bristol City Council intends to end the housing crisis in the city. So we are here, as to talk about something that's become a bit of a dirty word in politics, it seems, over the last 20, 30 years or so. We're here to talk about council housing in Bristol and what it means for people looking for a house, basically. So mm-hmm. what's the most recent thing that you've been looking at? So the most recent thing that we've been looking at has been to do with the start of building 13 new homes on a site in Brislington, the former Broomhill Nursing Care Home. What is the council's plan and what does it mean for council housing elsewhere in Bristol as well? To give you a little bit of background, since 2014, the council has built 81 houses for social housing. Now, When you look at the number of people on the social housing waiting list, there's more than 10,000. So clearly, you know, there's a gap somewhere in the system. There's not enough houses for the people needing them. Marvin Rees and this Labour administration is looking to improve that. And this year alone, they're hoping to have 80 houses built. And then in the future, they're looking to have even more social houses built with some other mixed developments thrown in. So why is the council turning back to council housing now when it's been sort of off the agenda for quite a long time, not just in Bristol, but around the country as well? Why now and what do they think it can really bring for people looking for houses? Well, I think it's down to a number of reasons, but probably for Bristol itself, it's property prices and the fact that wages are not rising at the same rate as inflation. Housing has just become unaffordable for people. You know, you're Perhaps previously there would be a slight stigma about living in a council house. But now I don't think there is that stigma at all. People need to live somewhere and the council and the state needs to step in and help people find accommodation. So what was it about council housing the first time around, sort of looking at the pre-war years, the post-war years? Sorry, what was it around that time that people started turning away from council housing then? Well, I think you have to look back to the kind of the Callaghan Thatcher years. When Margaret Thatcher came in, they had this, you know, mass sale of council houses. Everyone has a right to own a home. And even though that is, you know, you think of that as a Tory policy, Callaghan and the Labour Party were looking at this as well. So 
it was of its time as opposed to perhaps strictly of its party. And, you know, there was a big push to buying houses and owning and home ownership. But then as we've seen the house price market increase and inflate, it just is so unaffordable now. And, you know, we, we're in that position where are we looking at more state intervention, perhaps? And this is just this is national, not just, you know, local. Or are we going to look to models such as they have in Europe, like in Sweden, where home ownership just isn't a big thing and everyone rents for, you know, pretty much their whole lives. So I think we're in a real kind of juxtaposition here or a real crunch point as we look at home ownership in the UK. A lot of what councils do in terms of housing can mm. be dictated to them by central government. What are central government's plans and the Conservative Party's plans for housing in Britain? Well, we have been told that there is a push to build more council houses, a- along with an, a whole range of different types of ownership, such as the help to buy scheme and, and lots of different kind of pockets of development. But of course, the central government funds roughly around 25% of a local council's building of of a council house. So local authorities have to make up the other 75% and they do that through rental income, through social housing and other means as well. So from a local government, from a Bristol City Council perspective, they need a little bit more help or a lot more help from central government to have that funding to be able to build more social housing. And the only way they can do that is if, you know, Philip Hammond relaxes the purse strings a little bit in the Treasury. But it should be noted that Bristol City Council isn't just thinking that social housing is the answer to the housing problem in Bristol. They're looking at, you know, a really diverse range of solutions, such as part ownership, you know, people perhaps building their own homes and and all lots of different kind of pockets of things as well. Is there a cornerstone to Bristol City Council's housing policy that they're hoping can be the sort of the main driving force behind solving the housing crisis in the city? Or are they sort of taking little bits from each of these policies and hoping as a whole that it will improve things for homeowners? I think they're taking little bits. They're looking to start up their own housing um, company. So much as we have, you know, Bristol Energy, which is an arm's length company for energy in Bristol and Bristol Waste, arm's length company for waste collection, they're looking to do a similar thing with housing. Now, we're yet to see how that's going to play out, but presumably social housing will make up um, a rather large proportion of what they're looking to do. In addition, they're looking at what, well, Paul Smith, the the cabinet lead for housing, says that there's a real push towards diverse communities. So they don't want to be building, you know, like big estates, council estates like they were in, say, like the 50s or the 40s. They want to be building sites which have a, a very kind of diverse mold, model of ownership. So it's not just council housing, it's affordable housing and, you know, market rate housing as well to, to mix everything up. So we don't have just pockets which could be perhaps more likely to fall into deprivation and things like that. We've done a lot recently at Bristol Live about Bristol City Council's budget funding cuts mm. from central government as well, the strains that are really being put on local authorities like ours and others around the country. How does that impact on housing policy as well? How does that limit on what they can do with housing? Well, I think it impacts massively because if you're making cuts across the board, which Bristol City Council is having to do, it, you can't just take things in isolation, you know. A school's budget will invariably affect a health budget, which will affect a housing budget as well. They're all linked very intrinsically. And so it can it can feel like quite a blunt instrument when you say, well, we're cutting from this to save, you know, cutting from X to save in Y. So it, it definitely affects all, all aspects. But I think it's important to say as well that Bristol City Council is not in isolation. I think councils, local authorities across the UK 
are facing these huge challenges. And so we've talked about these houses in Brislington that mm-hmm. are in the works. Are there any other sites that they've that the council have highlighted? Are there any other locations where we could be seeing similar yes. schemes? Yes, yeah, I think there are six sites which they're looking to build on in from 2019 in the coming years. So hopefully in the coming, you know, three to five years, we should see a lot more social housing pop up in Bristol, which, you know, is just so desperately needed. And Bristol's quite unique in that it's quite closely bordered by mm. other quite densely populated areas. For example, if you get just outside of Loch Lees, you're in South Gloucestershire mm. pretty much immediately. How does the council try and work with other local councils as well in the surrounding area? Because obviously there must be some sort of overlap when it comes to housing. Definitely. And I think with the since we've come into WEC at the Combined Authority, which includes South Gloucestershire and Baines, not North Somerset, but with those two kind of borders, I think there's a lot more cross-collaboration there. But it is difficult, you're right, in Bristol, because we have built pretty much up to our boundaries. So the council launched a um, urban plan consultation talking about whether the people of the city would like to see higher, taller buildings pop up. Because, you know, if you can't go out, you have to go up. So, you know, we're waiting for the outcome of that. So from what you've seen as well with your expertise, what do you think is the the future for Bristol's housing market? What do you think the city will look like? Do you think this could be the answer? I don't think anyone has the answers. And I know that's a very politician answer to give you, but I just think it's so difficult. I don't think you can have one policy across the whole of the city. I think individual pockets and wards will have their own answers which are correct and right and fit for them. But in the end, I think it does have to come down to we need some more central government intervention. We need more funding. I won't start looking for a house just yet then. Probably not. Thank you, Ez. Thanks very much to all of our reporters this week. If you want to get in touch with them or follow their work, you can follow them all on Twitter. Tristan is at Tristan Cork Post. Joe Smith is at Joseph Smith. If it's spelled J-O-W-S-E-F. And Esme is at Esme Ashcroft as well. That brings this week's episode to an end. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at IBL Podcast, where we'll be posting links to all of the stories that we've been talking about this week. We'll also give you updates about next week's show as well. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at AMB Hack. So get in touch with any queries or questions or suggestions. And you can rate, subscribe and download us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. So please do that as well. And until next week, we will see you later. Mm-hmm.